Thank you, Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. Welcome back to Hanging with History. This is Season 1, That Miracle That Happened, That One Time. And this is Episode 128. This is the beginning of an arc on how the state influenced the Industrial Revolution, or did it? I want to begin by encouraging you to reach out to hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com with any questions, or if you're on Twitter, you can DM me there. And if you are on Twitter, give me a follow. People have definite ideas about government and politics, how they function, how they ought to function. It can be difficult to detach your views from the here and now to look back with eyes unclouded, to coin a phrase. Uh, We'll end this episode with the biggest riots in Britain, the Captain Swing Riots. So let's start out with the most traditional level of government in England, the local government in the countryside. This was almost entirely performed on a volunteer basis. Prominent men were expected to take a role as justices of the peace. Unpaid, the first judges to receive stipends in London were in 1792. They might be recommended by the local aristocrat to London, which had to approve JPs. Parish officials were also volunteer, though, of course, the minister was paid and that might be a couple of half-starved curates. At least that's the view of them we often have in literature. And there might be a hired constable or two, but often not. The militia could have a structure more tied to London, where the Lord Lieutenants are appointed by the Crown, and they in turn appoint the militia captains. The militia will be peopled by the gentry and the middling sorts, perhaps some of their dependents, but otherwise the poor were not trusted with weapons in this time period. The parish was the level where the most regular activity took place. That's where the gentry and the middling sorts paid taxes, the rates, The parish would maintain the roads and care for the poor, and some parishes were closed, especially remote ones where they would not allow the poor sorts, unlikely to be employed, to move in. The poor, and poor for whatever reason, were to be cared for under the poor laws. They could be the aged, the invalid, or merely unemployed. Uh, We covered the poor law system starting way back in episode 17, and recently we've covered how agricultural workers were gradually reduced to working for wages below subsistence by inflation raising costs above traditional wages, and these workers being sustained by charity, charity that in the Anglican idiom of the time ensured or merely helped that the charitable get into heaven. And yet it seems that these agricultural workers were better fed, healthier, had more surviving children, were better clothed, and typically even wore shoes when bare feet and clogs were more common on the continent. It is still a ridiculously hard life for the agricultural lower classes. When we did the Ark on Liberty's Dawn by Emma Griffin, we saw that sometimes the poor had to fight for their right to get support from the parish. We had a Baptist guy who got on the wrong side of his boss by not being able to afford the penny a week he'd promised to pay a Baptist preacher. He was denied relief, uh, relief is support under the poor laws, illegally. He had to go to a magistrate who then ordered the parish officials to provide relief. We had a widow with 11 children who did not receive enough food. The parish refused to give her more. So she decided to dump five of her children on the parish officials, saying that brief but immortal line, keep them, just those two words, keep them. Of course, the parish officials were stunned. 
they sent back the kids with a sack of flour, bread, and stuff. So the system to care for the poor was there, but it was a human-administered system. And like all human institutions, government above all, it was inevitably seriously flawed. That's not to say there were any better systems in Europe or elsewhere. Better defined as quality of life for the landless agricultural workers. So better, but undeniably harsh by our standards. And we will see this is true across a huge swath of British institutions that they seem horrible to us, but they were better than anything else in Europe. Statistically, we see about 9% of the population on poor relief most of the time, with it rising to 14% when harvests were poor. The cost was only a couple percent of GDP, but this is a terrible number. Most GDP is created in the cities, and the cities did poor relief indifferently or not at all. The ratepayers in an agricultural district might pay more like 10% on average, often higher, because rates weren't perfectly progressive. They had no way to do that. And credit was limited, so rates had to pop upwards in times of dearth. Cities were a different beast. They typically ran on charters, meaning that they had their own local laws and lawmakers. And there, for the poor, there was often only begging, theft, and prostitution to keep the wolf at bay. So the poor laws, how they worked in practice or failed to work, are heavily studied because they are unique to Britain. And Britain had the greatest impact upon the world, and everybody wants to figure this out. How did it happen? So naturally, looking at the unique institutions is sort of logical. You may realize I'm glossing over some of the details of poor relief, you know, direct cash and food and clothing type aid versus attempts at workhouses or other kinds of forced labor, how vulnerable the poor were to impressment in the Navy or drafting in the Army, and not in the usual sort of way because they could simply be sent by the magistrate in wartime. A handy way for the parish to rid itself of undesirables, but only sometimes available. I could say I'm skipping some details because it's hard for us now to see the poor relief system as a cause of the Industrial Revolution directly. But You might be thinking it's too bad they didn't take better care of the poor. Some of you almost certainly are, understandably. And yet it is not clear that in the 18th century, allowing the poor to have a greater consumption of the resources that could be produced would have contributed to the miracle. And the only thing we care about on Hanging with History is what caused the miracle, he said, lying through his teeth. Well, that should be our analytical framework. There could be three ways in which the poor laws made a contribution to the miracle or were deeply entangled with it, as was the end of the Western marriage pattern, the rise of empiricism, and the Enlightenment were entangled with it. One, the poor laws were both a cause and consequence of the vastly higher labor mobility we see in England, because unlike many societies, there was a way to care for aged parents that did not require children on the scene. In England, people moved a great deal for both economic purposes, very often, and to marry outside the extended family. Even as concepts, these are deeply entangled in nuclear family assumptions. That increased labor mobility may not be a trivial factor. City workforces had to come from somewhere. London was a population sink until about 1800. Factory workforces had to come from somewhere. 
There was so often an element of leaving home and family behind in these moves. Two, the relative generosity to the poor is part and parcel of English ideas about the value placed on human life. This is related to the minimally murdery concept uh, Tom Holland might call it deeply Christian, and also related to the less vile elites cause. We'll see, this is a credible cause of the miracle. You can also see this as a corollary of Gregory Clark's ideas of downward mobility in English society. Remember how gentry produced more surviving children than, than could be gentry, so many had to take middle-class positions, and, and the middle classes had more surviving children than the poor. Then this caused cultural values to shift downwards in class. So Clark's ideas are the opposite of Marx and continental philosophers, but but Clark's ideas are actually supported by data and robust models to a far, far greater degree. I think any notion of England as culturally superior would see generosity to the poor, relative generosity, remember, as a necessary corollary. Three, this kind of support for the poor allowed England to avoid the worst of the famines in the 16th century and avoid the worst of the 17th century, and completely avoid mass famine from the 18th century. And this means a larger population. And a large population, a large market. Uh, we've only lightly touched upon some of these causes so far. So this is a concept of stages, or a necessary sequence of events that a society has to endure to have the miracle for the first time. Obviously, just copying and applying the technology is much easier for the followers, I think of these sequential ideas or stage ideas as like walking a labyrinth, something we usually do just to manage grief these days. But the idea of the labyrinth, what's so powerful conceptually, ignoring for a moment the mental process, the powerful concept is that you have to take all the steps. A maze is a race to get through only the vital steps, right? Finding the correct path, that's a different thing. Because the question how many steps must I take to get through the labyrinth? The answer is all the steps. You don't get to skip anything. Some people are working on this now. Roger Koppel, among them, with a book uh, explaining technology, which should be available by the time you hear this. Also, this bigger population contribution is important to other people's ideas. Not enough by itself or, or other places would have had the miracle, but as a contributing factor. So there are some big ways. The institution of the state, poor laws, and how they really worked in practice could be, I say could be, seen as a contributing factor to the miracle. Certainly, it was all embedded together. So how else could Britain's very decentralized government contribute? One is the deeply decentralized structure itself. All right. This idea took me a while to get. Just increasing the number of agentic humans relative to other societies, people who could and would take action to better themselves, rather than merely being people who followed orders or being agentic within severely circumscribed possibilities, that could be a contribution. Another would be the issue I've raised many times. In those relatively sophisticated, most advanced early modern societies, think Spain and France and Italy, we see the growth of centrally directed administration something we call bureaucracy. An early bureaucracy had the effect of entrenching elite interests and hindering social, economic, and technological progress. 
the Permission Society. A high proportion of the scientific discoveries exploited by the British in the Industrial Revolution were made by the French and Italians, but their early success at centralization stymied their ability to apply these advances in useful knowledge. We did a whole we did a whole episode about this in societies based on getting permission. Individuals in Britain freer just did things, often failing initially, but succeeding eventually often enough. Oh, and these things that individuals did included the provision of public good, like we talked about last episode. Turnpike trusts, canals, bridges, harbors were often developed on a subscription basis rather than being centrally provided by government. Local elites administering parishes had, in theory, vast powers to regulate land use, markets, roads, poor relief. They could set prices, and mostly they refrained. They may not have been libertarian in principle when it came to markets, but they were de facto. And as the medieval and early modern laws granting these powers were slowly reversed, repealed, and replaced under a Smithian Enlightenment influence, there was little effect because they were so seldom used. And it wasn't just old laws that were bad for business and widely ignored. I mean, in 1714, Parliament lowered the usury rate from 6% to 5%, making 5% the highest legal interest rate. But banks found workarounds charging fees, counting loans as overdrafts instead of loans. Effective rates for bank customers were more like 7%. Officials ignored this, realizing business would not get done if they cracked down. So that's the decentralized state. There was a central government. We had the short-lived republic and the king in parliament. And there was the Bill of Rights with a new relationship defined between king and parliament in 1688 that from that, from that time went forward in an evolutionary way with no violent revolutions spawning demons faster than Sterner could count is on the continent. So what did the central government do? Uh, there are many issues regarding the central government in London that are difficult for moderns to get their arms around. And one of these is the unusual nature of corruption and the slow process by which it died out. The two Walpole episodes are good sources to begin understanding this. And we'll cover the end of it during the the end of the Second Hundred Years War arc, because all the end of easy government corruption happened under the pressure of those two wars. Though Mokir gives a lot of the credit to Enlightenment ideology, you know, Adam Smith and David Hume and many predecessors operating within the Newtonian philosophical framework. And that might be correct, but I feel like that's abstract enough that we really have to look at the end of corruption in detail. And we will. Roger Knight's book is really, really great on that subject. And so we aren't doing corruption this episode, except to give this quotation from Mokir illustrating its importance. Quote, the changes in the economy, however profound, would not in themselves inevitably have reformed British institutions. The movement towards economic growth could have been reversed. With the technological dynamism and entrepreneurial energies of the Industrial Revolution gradually running out of steam and fizzling out the victims of special interests and corruption, unquote. And my annotation to this paragraph reads, as happened with the Netherlands. And then, of course, were the superior property rights in Britain, and that they were a lot more specific, and the property owner had more say as to how the land would be used. And again, this slowly evolved. So people like Douglas North would place the evolution of property rights front and center as a source of the miracle. Quoting Mokir, 
The link between property rights and economic growth consists of the greater efficiency in the allocation of resources that results from the equalization of private and social rates of return and costs, unquote. So this is not a libertarian argument exactly. It's that transaction costs drop. Uncertainty drops, allowing more to get done, allowing for better integrated markets, more specialization, and greater economies of scale thereby. And this way of thinking places well-defined property rights above economic freedom. Obviously, the concept of agentic people used to providing their own public goods in an environment where you don't need permission for everything fits in here. One sector we covered in depth was agriculture and enclosures. Enclosures by act of parliament created a land holding more valuable than unenclosed land. But more than that, it greatly increased the efficiency, not on a per acre basis, but on a cost basis. We talked about this at length in the examples given by Adam Tooze in his book, The Wages of Destruction, where he showed that most of Germany still had land ownership patterns like Britain pre-enclosure. German farming was terribly inefficient compared to England. Not to say German farmers were poor farmers, far from it. On a per acre basis, they had some of the most productive farms. The farmers were excellent but they were poorly organized on a cost-efficiency basis. The vast amounts of labor they required made them worse off. Also, violence and crime are major factors to consider. Uh, Property has to be secure from theft and loss to be useful. In the Middle Ages, profits would be invested in land or the afterlife, you know, because of crime and theft. If you tried to hold gold, someone, a king, a noble, a tax farmer, could semi-legally just take your gold in addition to a simple theft. That was a common problem in France we saw with well-off peasants doing everything they could to hide their prosperity. So you either bought land or bought time off from purgatory by donating to the church. A lot of magnificent art and architecture was funded this way. I'm sorry if that sounds contentious, but a lot of donations were made to the church because what else were you going to do with your profits? This really was a momentous change. Eventually, a new kind of economic elite resulted. Someone rich in bond holdings rather than land. John Locke's right to property and security of property now no longer referring only to real property. So the concept of property rights would shrink away from property in positions and privileges towards the financial instruments and intellectual property. And this probably had the greatest effect on modernity. A bit away from our subject, so back to crime. In England, as late as uh, Charles II, during one of his Dutch wars in the 1670s, seized the deposits of the goldsmiths in the Tower of London, the goldsmiths being proto-bankers. So if you had gold there, it was suddenly gone. This is a seminal moment in uh, financial development. William Orange, in 1689, moved things along by getting Britain into a war with France for for most of the next 25 years, And this created a lot more debt. And with the advent of a large national debt, a new form of wealth was created. Now men who made money from their actions in the world could buy government debt and safely store their wealth in something that was not land. But what about regular crime? What about what Mokir calls the day-to-day property security in Britain? In 1700, Britain seems much, much more violent than today. There were highwaymen. Stand and deliver. Drop that gun. Let that be a warning to you all. You'll know that you're peril. 
And I have two pistols here. I know one of them isn't loaded anymore, but the other one is. So that's not the event for sure. Well, just about for sure anyway. Dennis Moore, Dennis Moore, riding through the land. Dennis Moore, Dennis Moore, without a merry band. He steals from the poor and gives to the rich. Stupid bitch. He steals from the poor and gives to the rich. Wait a tick. Blimey, this redistribution of wealth is trickier than I thought which were a real obstacle to all the long-distance traveling we talked about in previous episodes. Yeah, don't ride the Lupin Express. Part of the story of transportation improvements is the suppression of highwaymen. The heyday of smuggling will come and go during our 1700 to 1850 era. The smugglers, despite the romantic image they received in fiction later, were essentially murderous criminals. I mean, they were as quick to murderous violence as any drug gang in Chicago today. It was also regular street crime, especially in London. And also, we can see in our relatively poor crime statistics uh, a deep decline in crime from 1700 to 1850. And people remarked on the changes as early as 1750, so foreign travelers were marveling at how safe London had become. By 1760, murder rates were down near to modern levels. There was still the more impersonal crime of rioting. We talked about the machine-breaking and the Luddites. The worst riots we've covered, the Gordon Riots of 1780, the most destructive days between the Great Fire of 1666 and the Blitz. Uh, there were riots against dissenters in Birmingham, riots against Catholics and Irish immigrants in many, many cities, the Wilkes Riots, Turnpike Riots, the Captain Swing riots, we haven't talked about, were some of the most consequential riots. So let's slow down and take a look. These happened in 1830, and the rioters were the agricultural workers we've talked about so much, the bottom 20% that were among the last to benefit from the miracle. Their situation was precarious, always basically surviving on charity. There were poor harvests in 1828 and 1829 because of the worsening climate, we discussed in episode 120, and these were the most put-upon people in England, their numbers swelling due to increased life expectancy from lower mothers and childhood mortality, and there wasn't enough work, and seemingly their situation worsened in the Malthusian way. I mean, during the wars, there'd been high demand for their labor, and during peacetime, not so much. The traditional hiring process, the annual hiring fairs called MOPs, for an annual contract paid in cash and in kind, and then they would often have meals up at the big house. And this changed with the peace and harder times for the landlords. Contracts became monthly and cash only, and no more good cooking at the big house where they could expect meat. Well, in fewer and fewer places. And the thing that finally set them off was threshing machines, horse-powered machines. Now, Threshing was a process that normally took place after harvest, providing employment traditionally to women, but that was changing. Threshing by hand is tedious drudgery, using a flail to beat the cut grain stalks to separate the grains from the rest of the plant. I mean, hours and hours of repetitive motion, and yet it was still employment after harvest when there was not so much work available otherwise. And so one of the biggest sets of riots took place with hundreds of these new threshing machines destroyed. Men gathered in groups of like 200 to 400, threatening the farmer if he tried to stop them destroying the machine. 
And of course, you know how it is. However, riots start, they soon start to get out of hand. Haystacks and barns were burned in the night, horses killed, and they started to send out letters signed by Captain Swing, a made-up person named for the swinging of the flail and hand threshing. And these letters demanded higher wages, lower tides, and the destruction of the threshing machines. These riots basically happened in the South with about a thousand incidents. And so this was not a minor occurrence, a thousand. The political consequences were huge. It mainly happened where the Industrial Revolution was not providing new replacement jobs. In the Midlands, for example, and in the North, there were essentially no riots because everyone was much too busy working in industrial jobs. And there were also about 150 in East Anglia, which was still mostly rural. Typically English, unlike how this would have gone down on the continent, there was only one death. One death in a thousand riots. A farmer killed a rioter. And the rioters killed no one in over a thousand incidents. It's just amazing. The government cracked down and they arrested about 2,000 rioters and there were about 250 death sentences, but only 19 were carried out. Also a typical response. Almost 500 were transported to Australia where their sentences were remitted in 1835. So these guys got a pretty good deal. At the local level, parishes and business reaction to the Captain Swing riots did result in increased wages and many reduced tithes. And this gave great impetus to the Great Reform Act of 1832. And we'll cover some more about how the state influenced the Industrial Revolution in Part 2 and 3. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to discuss anything covered in the episode, please feel free to email me at hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Music